Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Hello and welcome to episode 3 in this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. In our last episode, we heard how three charities were tasked with providing therapy to the victims of a paedophile ring. During this work, they received alarming allegations from both children and other professionals about impropriety involving police officers and council workers. After they began passing this intelligence to the police, they noticed attitudes towards them and their work starting to shift. Then they were told a key piece of evidence, a notebook seized from the ringleader's flat, filled with names and addresses in London and references to children, had gone missing from police custody their liaison officer suddenly disappeared without explanation. His replacement, Bob Fuel, was well-meaning, but ineffective. The charity workers began to experience more peculiar incidents which they interpreted as warnings or threats. It was charity worker Mr. X, whose name is not being used in this series because he remains fearful of repercussions for speaking out, who was approached by Fuel and warned about the hatchet job. Fuel had described his van to him and told him to be careful when driving. But soon, Mr. X would experience a second incident involving the police and his van, one in which he said illegal items were planted inside the vehicle. His words are being read in this series by an actor to protect his anonymity. The police investigation got scary. I mean, whether it was that we were all a victim of groupthink and making mountains out of molehills, but there was just too much evidence. We each experienced what you might describe as gentle warnings. I got a knock on the door from two uniformed old Bill about four o'clock in the morning to tell me my van had been broken into. I went and had a look. The passenger door was open, the internal light was on, and there was a cosh on the front seat and a bag of weed. And the old Bill looked at me and said, Be careful in future, Mr X. Is anything missing? I said, No, mate. Shut the door, went inside and went, Bloody hell. I obviously went and chucked the weed away and chucked the cosh away straight away. So whether that was my paranoia because of what was going on at the time, but I interpreted it as a bit of a warning. That van wasn't registered to me. So how would they know my address to knock on my door? That was one of the things that scared me. How the f*** would they know where I live? Chris Hickey was the manager of the Rainer Project, a youth justice scheme which had helped to uncover the ring. He said both he and his staff also received what they felt were threats. So it's clear now we're not going any further with this. We are these annoying people who, who keep bringing problems to the police. And, that, and we're sitting in a, a liaison meeting. Police officer says to me, oh, yeah, hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, you live in Lewisham, don't you? I'd, I'd never had any personal contact with this guy. Yeah, I, I do. I do live in Lewisham. And... Uh, You've, you've got a white Fiat Uno registration, such and such and such and such. Yeah, I, uh, I do. I do. Uh, and you, you, you come to work every day and you drive down the A13. You usually get to South End about 9, 9, 15, something like that. Yeah, yeah. 
all right, yeah, no, nothing, just, you know, nothing, just, that's it. I'm thinking, he's just threatened me. He's just said to me, I know who you are. I know where you live. I know what car you drive. I know when you, when you come and go, where you're going, all this kind of thing. You're on our radar, Sonny Jim. I'm 66 now. I've never had that conversation with a police officer. I worked for three years with the constabulary in Gloucestershire doing training development work. No police officer ever said to me, I know what car you drive and this, that and the other and so on and so forth. It was clearly and unequivocally a threat. And this was happening to all of our staff. People were having little conversations which were around, you know, oh, you were in the such and such pub last night, weren't you? What? What? You know? just saying we're watching you now you don't have to say much to begin to feel very nervous in a climate where the atmosphere between agencies is has gone down they did everything they could to tell us to back off we had a break-in we have a break-in that we know because of the um uh, the alarm and the alarm system and nothing is taken papers are moved around various bits and pieces and they're just you know you're just going Wow, who, who did that? Who could do that? Without a, a shadow of a doubt, the atmosphere became toxic. And as a group, we really were very anxious, nervous. We felt threatened. We felt compromised. You, you know, the stakes were high. And here's Jenny Grinstead, who worked for the Children's Society and was asked to coordinate the three charities' work. She began to suspect her calls were being listened to. There was a whistle and an echo in it all the time. And, and then, as I said, I had a friend who worked for BT who said, there's something on your phone. During the course of my investigation in 2017, I received a telephone call from a female source who said she was too frightened to identify herself, but that she was a former child protection worker. She gave me insider information I was later able to verify, proving she had intimate knowledge of child protection work in Southend at the time. Her words from that phone call are being read by an actor. I know a lot was covered up. One of my colleagues was threatened quite seriously at the time, and a lot of us were pulled off. Everyone's keeping quite quiet. Pressure was so great. Believe me, it was scary. I'm just so angry about it still. When you're involved in something like a paedophile ring, you'll catch the small fry, but to get the big boys, it's a real problem. When we started to get closer, my colleague was threatened by the police. I know my colleague was so scared because they were pulled off the street by police. The two who scared off my colleague, he never got their names. They threatened his wife and children, so he just left the profession. I don't want any links to me because there's something still going on. It just stinks. Jack, the artful dodger from episodes one and two, also told a similar story to the charity workers at the time. He said his friend had been assaulted by police officers after they found out he was asking questions about the Shubury paedophile ring. Here's Chris Hickey reading an excerpt from the notes of that meeting. Drinking friend. Being digging around re-Shubury sex ring. Being warned off by 2CID. Came back with black eye. Saying, out of his league. Very senior police officer involved. To date, I have seen contemporaneous paper records of, or received verbal accounts of, more than 10 people linked to this case who experienced what they interpreted as warnings or threats by police officers. It seems unlikely that they could all be mistaken or making it up, 
particularly the ones who recorded it at the time in confidential minutes, letters, and memos. So what was going on? Why were some police officers behaving in this menacing way towards a group of professionals who were just trying to help stop the abuse of children? It felt to the group like Essex County Council was closing ranks as well. We heard in the last episode how Jenny Grinstead had been asked by social services to write two reports about the Shoebury Ring, one giving an overview of the problem and the response so far, the other dealing more specifically with the physical and psychological damage to the victims. The former was due to be handed in during March 1990, but in the same week that Bob Fuel revealed he'd been told to do a hatchet job on the group, they were also told that social services no longer wanted Jenny's report. Here's Jenny with a few excerpts from the minutes of that week's pig meeting, which give an insight into the group's increasing fear and unease. The group must not be panicked by being attacked and put under pressure. Jenny Grinstead said that the group had been questioned as to why they were meeting regularly. Adrian Williams said a social service worker had informed him that Jenny Grinstead's report would not be used by social services as they will do one themselves. Jenny Grinstead said the group were in danger of uncovering embarrassing things, felt that the information should go to three directors. Jenny was referring to the directors of the three charities. The group decided to collectively approach their bosses and ask them for support. Two weeks later, another pig meeting was held where the frightened charity workers hatched a plan to make sure all future activity was attributable only to pig as a unit, making it harder for sinister forces to pick off particular sources. Here's Chris with an excerpt from the minutes. Mr X said the group must have a high profile. He doesn't want to be up front as a grass. Chris Hickey said that the action must be untraceable organisation to organisation. Group agreed they must stick together. They would be vulnerable if working separately. Five days later, on the 20th of March 1990, the charity workers sent a joint memo to their directors. It detailed allegations about individuals within official agencies and outlined their concerns about the way this information had been treated thus far by the authorities. Here's an excerpt read by Jenny. We, the undersigned, meet regularly. The purpose of this group is to share information that arises out of our direct work with young people who have been identified as victims or potential victims of a paedophile sex ring operating in the South End area for at least the last two years. Whilst we have been meeting, we have been contacted by other professionals who, upon hearing of the work that we are doing, wish to share the information which follows. This information, in many cases, has come from young people those professionals are working or have worked with. Some of these concerns have already been shared with the police officer, who has subsequently been transferred from his post without explanation to us. Information has reached us of certain police officers who either have a direct connection with the two adults awaiting trial for sexual offences against children in respect to the Shrewsbury sex ring, one of these officers is named by the children as a regular visitor to the paedophile's flat. Another two officers are close associates of the first officer. Furthermore, young people have told us that the first officer was a regular visitor to the flat of a local known drug dealer. It's also said by the young people that that is where they spent their money, which they got from the two paedophiles. 
we believe that it may be necessary for this information to be investigated by police and a social services department from another area. As much of the information is widely known by local police and social services and no perceivable action has been taken. So already in 1990, the charities investigating and trying to help were saying that an outside force needed to come in. This was too close to Essex Police for Essex Police to investigate by itself. On March the 30th, 1990, Jenny turned in her first report to social services, even though it no longer wanted it. In the report, she emphasised that although she'd initially been tasked with investigating abuse by two men, it had become clear that the problem was far greater than just King and Tanner. Here's an excerpt. Many other young people and adults were connected to the original 14 victims and two perpetrators. A list containing over 50 names of children and young adults believed to be connected to the original child sex ring or to be involved in child prostitution has been given to the social services department and the police. There is some evidence that a few of the original 14 boys were taken to other addresses, both in Southend and outside, to addresses which could be loosely defined as within the Thames Corridor. For example, Canby, Corringham, Havering, Stratford. Some of the young people have described being drugged and used for the making of pornographic films and pictures. On the 9th of April 1990, Dennis King and Brian Tanner attended court for what should have been the first day of their trial, on charges of conspiracy, buggery and gross indecency. The counts on the indictment only related to a handful of boys, but they were specimen charges, meaning that the court should consider them as examples of far more widespread offending. The court heard that there were in fact now believed to have been dozens of victims. Also in attendance that day were the handful of boys at the centre of those specimen charges, ready to testify. But then they were sent home, told they were no longer needed because the men had changed their pleas to guilty. But what the boys weren't told that day was that the men had only changed their pleas in return for the charges being dramatically watered down. The original rap sheets with the buggery and conspiracy charges had carried potential life sentences, but under a deal offered to the two men by prosecutors, the conspiracy charges were dropped and the buggery charges were downgraded to attempted buggery. Prosecutors told the charity workers that the deal had been done to spare the boys from having to testify, but the boys were never consulted. Here's Mr X, who worked closely with several of those boys. They said it was to do the kids a favour, so they don't have to be a witness. Now, us and the Rayner Foundation had done loads of work with these young people so that they were ready. They would have stood up, and they wanted to, quite a lot of them. They weren't given that opportunity to do that. And here's what I was told by Ben, a victim we heard from in episodes 1 and 2. His words are once again being spoken by an actor. I was very keen to testify. They did have to convince me to testify, but when they had, I was ready for it and up for it. I remember getting ready to go to the court on the day I went with my mum. We were put into a room and we weren't there that long before I remember my mum going out to talk to someone and then coming back in and saying, we're going home, he's changed his mind and changed his plea to guilty. That was it. I just assumed he was put away for a long time, because that's what I was led to believe would happen. Two days after that plea deal was struck, after liaising with their directors, the charity workers, 
met with a lawyer. Together with that lawyer, they drew up a document which committed to paper the intelligence they'd received and passed to the police, but had seen no evidence of any proper investigation into. Here are some excerpts from that document. Police have shown little interest in interviewing other boys who claim to have been involved with King and Tanner. Jack is able to identify addresses in Havering and Stratford where pornographic videos involving children were made. He's willing to be taken to the locations to point them out. The police have shown no interest in making arrangements for Jack to visit the locations. A boy has given information alleging that adults in a named pub offer children money for sex. Mr X has made it clear that he's willing to set up an interview with the boy. The police have not taken up this offer to date. Members of the network group have received information implicating a member of the police force in certain activities of King and Tanner. The allegations relate to drug dealings and sexual intercourse with underage girls. This information has been passed to the police. Members of the network group have received no request from the police to arrange interviews with the original informants. Minutes from the charity workers' meeting with the lawyer stated, There has been a lack of satisfactory liaison. This is because the officer originally appointed to liaise with the network group was transferred very suddenly from his position. He has been replaced by an officer of lower rank who has not always demonstrated an appropriate response and does not appear to have a good grasp of the issues or the necessary expertise to mount such an investigation. The following month, King and Tanner arrived at court to be sentenced. Having had their charges reduced, they were no longer looking at potential life sentences, but nobody was quite expecting what actually happened in court that day. It emerged that both men had prior convictions for abusing underage boys. Despite this, during the hearing, the Shubury victims, who we've heard were abused from as young as eight and nine years old, were smeared by King and Tanner's defence lawyers as prostitutes. And worse still, the judge appeared to agree with them. Here's how the South End Evening Echo reported the hearing. The pair, both of murky record, were fast sinking into impotence, South End Crown Court heard. Defence counsel claimed King and Tanner were keen to accept medical treatment best achieved outside prison. Mr Adrian Fulford for King said it was his bad luck that years ago, when he began offending, today's sophisticated techniques were unavailable. Instead, men with his problem received the since-discredited aversion therapy. They were given massive doses of drugs which had disastrous side effects, but now at 54 his libido is on the wane and he has a real desire for counselling. Both barristers stressed that the men had used no coercion towards the boys who had made the initial approaches. Judge Beaumont accepted that moral and psychological damage done to them was perhaps limited. There was nothing limited about the damage done to those boys. At least two of them had attempted suicide. The sentencing and Judge Beaumont's comments directly contradicted the findings of Jenny Grinstead's second report into the impact of the abuse on the victims. Co-authored with the other charity workers, it was based on interviews with 25 known visitors to Dennis King's flat. She turned it in just weeks after the sentencing. Here's Jenny reading some excerpts. The two perpetrators targeted the most vulnerable young members of the community. A high proportion of the survivors originate from extremely disadvantaged backgrounds. 
The effects on all of the survivors have been and are enormous. The majority, even as young as 11, abuse drugs on a regular basis. At least two have attempted suicide. The majority are exceptionally confused about their sexuality. Some have graduated into the local rent boy scene. Indeed, an 11-year-old boy has been known to take an 8-year-old out all night to places where young boys are known to meet paedophiles. Some have begun to display abusive behaviour towards younger peers and their younger brothers and sisters. Some are displaying self-abusive behaviour, for example, purposely crashing stolen cars and damaging themselves with lighted cigarettes, knives, etc. The majority have begun to display violent behaviour. All suffer from bouts of depression, low self-esteem, lack of confidence and alienation from their families and community. But Judge Beaumont had sentenced on the basis that the boys had suffered little damage. King got just four years, and Tanner got three. Each man had already served one year on remand, and in the UK, criminals only serve half of their sentence inside. This meant that Tanner had just months left behind bars. Chris Hickey described the shock and devastation that followed that sentencing hearing. Don't forget, we know the criminal justice system. At the time, there's a big book that you could look up sentencing guidelines in, which all lawyers and lawyer officers had. And we had a copy because we used it all the time. We're going to court. I mean, I spent two days a week in court, magistrates court, crown courts. I've been doing it for 10 years. I knew the criminal justice system. I knew how things were. I knew how to look up the sentences for crimes and all this kind of thing. So I have this book, Archbold, and we're looking up the sentences and we're looking at all this kind of thing. And saying, look, everything, taking it all into consideration, reading all the facts, reading the same, the exact same book that the judges read. Using our own solicitors, using the boys' solicitors, we're, sit- we're sitting there thinking, you know, they could get life and all this kind of thing. But don't forget, these guys have been doing it for 20, 30 years as well. This, they, had a, they, had, they had a record as long as your leg, never mind as long as your arm. And so we thought, yeah, 15 years. You know, that, look, don't be disappointed if it's only 15 years. They'll die. He's, he's 50-something. He'll die in prison. Don't worry about it, you know. And I, I mean, it remains to this day one of the most shocking things in my life. I, I, having lived with it for nearly two years, having known the details, knew, known what those did right and lived with the pain and torment and torture that these children children had suffered and all that time it's as near to vigilant becoming a vigilante as as i've as i've ever wanted to become i could not believe it nobody could believe it the kids couldn't believe it the solicitors we worked with couldn't believe it it was shocking and and the the kids looked at us and goes what have you been saying i mean they were so they were angry and we were there we were angry with us you know and we felt shamed in what oh god almighty it was like fools idiots you know it was my job it was our job to know these things we we had, we had, we we had a kid not no very close to the time that this happened there was a 16 year old boy with four previous convictions who'd robbed a woman. Now, it was not a pleasant crime. Pushed a woman over in South End High Street and ripped her handbag out of her hand. He went to prison for three years. He went to prison for longer than King and Tanner. You know. Rob West, who worked with Chris at the Rayner Project, 
described how being smeared by the court and denied proper justice affected the boys. They got a much lesser sentence, hence the very low disposals, and I think as a result those boys felt disappointed and failed and unprotected again. And so I think it just compounded their attitude, their anti-authority attitudes, their, their belief in this, a system of justice, uh, which they were already subject to being abused by because they were victims who were crying out for help and they had to offend in order to be noticed and therefore they were punished by their fear of offending and now they were further punished for their victimisation. You know, what they were called at that time was, you know, in court, I was in court during the sentencing of these guys. It was said they couldn't get an erection, they were impotent. It was also said that these boys... Uh, were effectively rent boys. However, how can a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old be a prostitute? They can't consent. Here's some more from Chris Hickey. It destroyed them. It destroyed us. It destroyed the trust between us. They went on a mini rampage. I, I don't mean they, they smashed the... But, but a crime spree. They became unreachable. So the work that Rainer Foundation did at the time was all about building trust and rapport and working with people's minds and working with their thinking to, to help people think through the consequences of their actions and take responsibility with themselves and all this kind of stuff. And just that went out the window, absolutely and completely out of the window. What destroyed any prospect of recovery was the fact that those buggers did not die in jail, as they would deserve to do. And the, the leniency with which they were treated gave a very clear message. This doesn't matter. This doesn't count. You don't count. We don't believe you. We don't care. Of course, what the charity workers didn't know at that time, and wouldn't find out until almost 30 years later when I started investigating, was that Dennis King was working for the police. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.